Today I'm welcoming Doug Howard on the show. He's an inventor, entrepreneur, author, keynote speaker, and discoverer of hypernomics. Doug Howard unleashed a paradigm shift. He discovered multidimensional economics. It alters economics in the same way relativity changed physics as it uses new frames of reference, according to his words. But there's no upper limit to the dimensions considered, although he speaks mostly about four dimensions in determining price. It finds the linked opposing self-organizing states of value and demand at work against each other at all times, just like the game of tug of war. Enjoy. Serena, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've checked out your, your show and your website. You've got a very interesting collection of ideas and, and technology. So I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of this. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, uh, hypernomics is, as the name implies, hyper meaning in, means existing in more than three dimensions. And nomics means a, a field of study. So hypernomics is a field of study about phenomena that happen in four or more dimensions. And while it seems really complicated, I actually got the idea watching my wife buy a washing machine. She was buying this washing machine and we, the, the one we had here broke. We went off to the store and she said, you know, the, the washing machine we, we have at home is kind of small. I want to have a bigger drum. And I thought capacity versus price. So she was looking at two dimensions at the same time. And she said, we've only got one delicate cycle at home. I'd like to have more, more delicate cycles. So then I thought cycles versus price. So she just added another dimension in there. And then I saw the next machine up the line. And uh, I said, what about this one? She says, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. And I realized that uh, our little sale here was part of all the sales of this machine. And the fewer the machines that were more expensive were being purchased than the ones that we were looking at, and still more of the ones that were cheaper. So that was price versus quantity. So I had quantity, capacity, cycles, and price. I realized that she was doing four dimensions, solving a four-dimensional problem in her head, just juggling the balls in her head. And it turns out when we started to study this that everybody solves these problems in a way in which you can describe using some technology and that's what we do we we solve these problems and so what you would use it for is you'd figure out what for example what the, that price of the washing machine ought to be ought to be or the the tv set that you're looking at or the computer that from which you're working or the car you drive all that all those items that you buy every item that you buy is the price is determined by the market I mean, the producers can set the initial price, but eventually the consumers are going to have something to say about the price. And if it's too high, they won't buy enough. If it's too low, they're going to bid the price up. And so this helps you figure out what the what the price ought to be before you make it. It also shows you where something might be in the market that, you know, you want to find out what somebody, what the market wants, doesn't have, and can afford. So this shows you, it helps create maps that show you open spaces in, in markets. Mm -hmm. But you have to feed it first, I suppose, with information. Oh, yes. You got it. It, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of care and feeding. Yes. Right. <laughs> Lots of feeding. Yes. Uh, okay. So the technology that you developed behind is actually a calculation uh, methodology or? Yes. It's a, it's a methodology. We, we couldn't, we can't patent mathematics. So we didn't patent the math. The math has been around for forever. We just, 
discovered it. But what we did was we we came up with a method by which we display it. And so the display has the, the, the value attributes of a product on one side and then the demand for it on the other side. And we put value elements in green, meaning that people, that you, you can keep adding value almost indefinitely, almost indefinitely. The reason we say that is that at a certain point, the, the demand is going to be limited by how many dollars people have to spend. And so looks at the green value side and compares it to the red demand side. And it shows these interactions going on in the market at all times. So we've used it for everything from uh, ground beef to train travel to spaceships. We've also created a little private fund. It's not open to the public, but we've, we, we buy stocks out of the U.S. Stock Exchange, the S&P 500, as it's known here. And we're doing twice as well as they are over three and a half years. So, um, so it so seems you, to work. You you feed yeah. your methodology, your system, so to call it, uh, mm -hmm. with stock market information, and it makes a mm -hmm. proper projection. I see. Yeah, yeah, gives you some options, and then you choose an option, and then you that that would be something you would buy. You would find something in then our vernacular we'd underpriced. Mm -hmm. The market's not properly valuing it. Or if you wanted to short it, you you'd find something that's overpriced. We we don't trade in 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 shorts or leverage or options or anything like that right now. We just do all straight buys. We want to be very conservative, prove it works, and that's how we do it right now. So yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's not a commercialized product. You're just test, testing, no. just okay, just testing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And are four dimensions enough to uh, give a a significant enough? correctness about this well that that's an excellent question sometimes we have to add in other features and we, we we you would modulate the data with other information so for example to take an let's take a uh, a house for example you're i'm living in a house you're, you're in a house it the value of the house is a function of how many square feet it has and maybe the size of the lot but it's also a function of the the income standard that people are in. So you might look at the the square footage of the house and the lot size, but then you would add another element, which would be what's the average income in your locality? And, and that would be another feature. And so it turns out you can keep stacking other features into this. We've got some equations that we use for stock market analysis that have six features that we've we've discovered that are useful in figuring out the value of a stock. I'm sure there could be up to 10 or 20 mm -hmm. that would be useful. And you just, you keep having to draw them out of the data and figure out what, what, what the market is responding to. Um, so yes, that, that's an excellent question. That, that, that exactly is true. So, okay. I have a, another interesting question here when you okay. talk about uh, housing prices, uh, particularly. So, mm -hmm. When, when when we think about the income of people, it's it's like a spot price, like it's it's the income as is. But does it make any projections of what the economic outlook is for the coming, let's say, quarter? Does it take this into account and how this would affect income? Yeah, it can do that. It, uh, one of the things that we do is we like to take the what we call the distant past, the near past. In the present. So we take the distant past, the near past, and the present, and we use these snapshots to project the future. 
And so you, you can't go too far out in the future. But if you take what's happened, say, in real estate a month ago, two months ago, and you take it a month, a month ago and you take it now, you're starting to get a little bit of a trend that shows you how the market is is moving over time. So, yes, we can do that. In fact, we we did that for uh, we did that for aviation. There was a company that was making a business jet that they a supersonic business jet up in Reno, Nevada, about, you know, about uh, an hour's flight north of here. And um, they they were building this jet. They they had so much money set aside for the development cost that looked good to us. And then they had a price that they posted for it. And we did some analysis and said, well, that price is good. But then they said they wanted to sell 300 of these things for $120 million in a decade. And it worked out that the market was only supporting, when they started out, would support about 47 in 10 years. And five years later, it would it was supporting maybe 63. So when they started out in their first year, they had 20 orders. And five years later, they still had just 20 orders. So I wrote a, a piece on LinkedIn and said that it was worth every penny, but there weren't enough pennies in the world for them to make their sales target. So I got an angry reply from an executive there that said, well, we just got a big order in. Well, he, he failed to mention that the order, such as it was, was all um, what they call options. They, that wasn't a firm order in, in aerospace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then six months later, they went bankrupt. And they, they seemed surprised, but if you'd done this analysis early on, you would have prevented this, this billion-dollar-plus fiasco from happening. They, they, they basically lit a billion dollars on fire here and, mm. and uh, never to be re recovered. From, from what I understand, I, I mean, I'm also thinking in a few dimensions while you're speaking, and uh, I understand that the demand can be local, can be from... So oh, yeah. There's a human... Um, there's a big human uh, part in the setting up of the system, right? So... How do you define where the demand comes from, or what if the model changes, or things like that? Do you take this information from the client, or how does it work, or do you have a team who does it for the client? Well, it it kind of depends on the on the job that we're doing. But say, for example, in the stock market, um, it, you can get all the information you need to populate a, a one of these models from a say a TD Ameritrade America. TD Ameritrade account. That's how I do my stuff. I take data from TD Ameritrade and they have 500 stocks. You can get, oh, I think two or 300 columns of data if you wanted to. We, we don't pull in that much, we, but we take in this data. And from that, you can get enough data to do the analytics. But back to your other point, sometimes what we have to do is the reason we pick aerospace is a lot of the aerospace projects have their, pri their prices posted online by somebody. In some cases, it's very hard to find. For example, helicopters is hard to find. But if you wanted to find the price for military hardware, for example, here in the United States, the government has, they're required to be transparent. So they will actually give you the data. And some, so sometimes you just, you have to go out and dig it out. They just don't give it all to you nicely ordered. You have to go dig it up and then order it and everything. But well, there's various ways that you go acquire the data and it, it becomes very, it can be either very easy, like with the S, you know, the S&P 500 data, you can pull everything in you need inside of a, a minute. 
And then other things that could take you thousands of hours. So it, it depends kind of what the project is. Mm -hmm. And that was actually my next question. Are the, are the projects um, um, given by the or assigned by the customer, by a company, or who are your clients? Yeah, they're typically assigned by a client. A client we've we've worked for NASA, Lockheed Martin, Virgin Galactic, uh, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies. We started in aerospace. We're trying to trying to get a wider purview. We're trying to get into some more elements so we've done analytics for say train travel uh what electric cars cost we, we've done it also for agriculture so we 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 know we know the technology will work for any any field we to which we want to apply it so that's what we are we're trying to expand our client base by going into some other fields outside of aerospace mm -hmm. so does it require a, a big ticket client to get an assignment with you or can a smaller company also make use of a package that you're offering? Yeah, a smaller client can use the same thing. So, for example, we have a restaurant just down the street from us. And during COVID, out here in the United States, they they were restricting indoor dining. You maybe remember that. I don't know if that happened in Europe. But they did, yeah. In, so indoor dining was, was highly restricted at the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so they had a patio area and they had... I think it was three very large tables. They had three tables of six and three tables of four, and then just a couple of tables, maybe of two. And, um, you know, I'd been there coming to this restaurant for quite some time, and I saw all the restaurant, all the tables were occupied, and there was a line out the door. And I, I you know, we knew the manager, we knew the owner very well. And I said, hey, do you want to make some more money? And she said, well, sure. What would I have to do? He said, well, you, you need to take your big tables that are occupied, but not fully occupied. You need to break, take some of the big tables out and put tables for two in because it works out that worldwide, there are more than twice as many parties of two, at least in the United States, there's more than twice as many parties of two going to the restaurant as there are parties of four mm -hmm. and even fewer still of six. So what you want to do is you want to be able to accommodate the optimum party size. So they they took out the large tables, some of them, and put in some small tables, and the revenue shot up twenty five percent in two months. So that that's something you can do locally. That uh, it's a pretty easy application of the tech. So, mm -hmm. is there something you can do yourself online, or does it require your team to or yourself to set it up? Uh well, we're we're about to set up classes for. Um, Hypernomics. You, you would take a class. The um, the publishing company Wiley um, Wiley and Sons is going to publish my book entitled Hypernomics: Using Hidden Dimensions to Solve Unseen Problems. That's going to come out in January of next year. They're going to use it as a textbook. So between this textbook and our class, or the class you might take in college we believe you're going to have a pretty good way to understand this this field. It's it's, it's like any new Disciplined in college, you you would typically want to go and, and learn about it. It um, the the math behind it is I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's it's no harder than well, it's 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 less hard than a lot of the advanced high school class advanced high school classes. So from that standpoint, it's it's understandable and, and accessible to people, and we think it's going to revolutionize. Uh, the, the the financial industry right now 
a Dr. Clayton Christensen out of Harvard will tell you that 95% of all new product ideas fail. Well, what if that was only 94%, say? Well, it doesn't sound like a lot, but then you're going from a 5% success rate to a 6% success rate. Maybe the success rate could go up by 20%. Well, what would that mean for the economy? Well, in the, it would mean a lot for the, the, the businesses that are putting this stuff together. They're, they're increasing their chances of getting the right thing because they start to understand the, the, the market space and how people are actually working in a, in a space. Because this shows you where everybody is. It shows you how the customers are reacting to your competition. And it gives you an idea of where to fit in into, this, into these spaces. And so we think that people applying this more often, well, Christ, right now they, nobody has it, but once it starts to be applied in, in, you know, in broader and broader segments of the economy, that the success rate ought to start climbing for products. Also here in the United States, the failure rate for companies is very high. I think seven out of 10 businesses fail after 10 years. Well, what if that was reduced by, it was, say only six out of 10 businesses failed? Well, it'd be, you know, very much appreciated from the extra business that didn't fail because they use this kind of technology. So it's, it's within reach of anybody that's gone, taken a high school math class. If you could take a high school math class, you could take this class. It's, it's basically appealing, um, uses a little bit of statistics you may not get in high school, but the, the math is all something people have seen in high school. Um, and it's all accessible to people. So we, we think it's going to be very dynamic. We It's our intention that it would be a, a course in college at the beginning, and then eventually a, a concentration in business school, and then maybe eventually its own discipline, hypernomics. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I'm wishing you all the best in, in this endeavor. Um, Thank you. Would you would you mind sharing at least a, a glimpse of what you're seeing uh, in terms of the outlook from the S and P five hundred now that you're looking at it with the scope of hypernomics? Yeah, it it seems like the the market is kind of wondering what to do. What's happened here in the United States is that the the M one the money supply had been very stable. For decades upon decades, it, it wouldn't vary by more than, say, 10% in a quarter. And then when COVID hit, it went up by 400%, over 400%, 4x. And it, then it went up from there, and now it's coming back down. So the stock market's wondering, and then the interest rate here in the United States went up along with that, which is part of the, you know, because the, the inflation's gone up here. And inflation went up because there's so much money in the market. So I think the market's trying to figure out, are we going to reduce the money supply and reduce the interest rates so that people can go into the stock market and make more money? So the market's kind of vacillating. It doesn't know what to do. And um, so we're, we're kind of in a hold position right now ourselves. We haven't made too many trades lately because mm -hmm. we, we feel like the stocks we have are pretty good. They're not being rewarded the way we think they ought to be, but that's because people don't know what's going on. There's a lot of uncertainty in the market right now. And that's part of what we hope to be able to take out of out of the world going forward. We we think that, you know, you see these these huge cyclic events in the market where the, you get these big amp, big ups and big downs, especially the one we had in 2009 where the housing shortage came into play. Well, if you 
if this had been in place 20 years before that, and everybody, well, of course, there's a bunch of ifs, but if everybody had abided by, you know, fair reporting rules, which is to say they weren't, you know, overrating the products that were that were really pretty crummy, they were giving them real high rating, that that blip we had, instead of being so massive, would have been reduced. So we think what will happen over time, too, is that the the volatility in the market will start to dampen over time as people get this technology in their back pocket. Because people will say, uh, you know what? You go ahead and overreact to the market. I said, I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to overreact. I'm not going to panic sell when, when, when you guys start to get a little nervous about the prices. I'm not going to panic buy when everything's rolling up. I'm going to stop going along with the herd because I understand the, the herd's going to start to see, see things my way and it's going to start to dampen the effects of these these uh, swings over time. That's what I think is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Answer your question. Uh, yes, it did. But I'm also thinking about the fact that there are a lot of um, events that are uh, driven by policy decision making. Oh, yeah. So, um, how can this be taken into account when you have no clue what the outcome would be? For example, uh, the the voting for the interest rates or um, I don't know, something like what is happening in Ukraine or something else happens, an extraordinary black swan event. And I can't explain every event, but mm -hmm. um, for example, we, we can know what happens, for example, with respect to tax policy. Here in the United States in, in 2014, Washington State and California, both the United States, no, I'm sorry, um, Colorado, excuse me. Washington State and Colorado both legalized recreational marijuana mm -hmm. in the same year. Now, Washington State had a, a third more people. At the end of the year, Colorado had seven times more revenue, tax revenue, than Washington State did. The reason for that was that Colorado's tax rate was 30% and Washington State's was 108%. And so what this recognizes is that there's there's a response that the, the taxpayers will have to added taxes. So here in the United States, people are leaving some of the, ta the states that have higher tax rates. They, the states seem to think that higher tax rates necessarily implies higher tax revenue. But if the, the shape of the demand for tax, the, the shape of the demand curve for the taxpayers is flat, and it is, you're actually shooting yourself in the hip. What you want to do is you want to keep the tax rate low enough to draw people to your state so that you have more people to tax. You don't want to overtax them. You want to appropriately tax them so you have more people from which to draw. And so what's happened here again in California, a lot of really wealthy people have left because they've thrown some pretty pretty steep taxes on them, on them that they can not have to pay if they're in other states. And so... This policy, getting back to setting interest rates, you know, the, the money supply, the interest rates, the inflation, it, it's all tied together. And it's tied together in a four-dimensional system that's modulated by these other factors. And so what you need to be able to do is you need to model this in order to predict what's going to happen going forward. So uh, not too many people understand that now, and it's our intention to get more people to understand it. So fewer bad things happen. Now, to your question about Ukraine, that's, I guess, Nicholas Taleb would say that's a black swan event. That becomes pretty hard to predict. Um, mm -hmm. I guess you could look at past wars and see if you can predict 
around past wars, but I mean, there's it's just a huge tragedy. I know you're you're quite a bit closer to it out there where you are, and your homeland's even closer still. Uh, I don't know how you go about predicting that now, but we may have something to, to say about that going forward. Um, we may be able to figure out, you know, some more parameters that come out of world events that you could actually stick into a model like this to maybe prevent fewer of these incidences happening, happening, but haven't attempted to try to do that yet. But that's a fabulous question. Mm -hmm. Serena, I appreciate that. Very good question. Appreciate your answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there another example that, or that you, that you can share with us where you can exemplify what are the dimensions that you can put in? Let's say you mentioned um, electric cars. What are some mm -hmm. dimensions you uh, took into account for the pricing? Well, we we when the first electric cars were first starting out, we looked at the horsepower and range. And now what we're looking at is the ranges are starting to become more homogenized. So there's not as much separation, but we're looking at, um, or I should say the ranges are being more homogenized. We're looking now at the the horsepower and the number of seats. So if you, if you have an SUV that seats seven, that's more valuable than a sedan that seats five or a sports car that seats two. So we'd look at seats and, uh, and horsepower. We, we could also look at the warranty of something like that. When you're looking here at your computer screen, you could use the, you know, when we talk about a car, that term that I have for passengers is a capacity term. So your computer's got a certain capacity to it. There's the internal memory, and then there's the RAM. And then there's a certain capacity to the screen that you're looking at. And that the screen's not only got a capacity to it, but it's got a clarity based on the number of pixels. And you can accommodate all that in this kind of model to keep trying to drive the price, try to narrow the, the, the air band around the price. What you're trying to do is to, you know, your errors might be like this around what your prediction is, and you're trying to neck the, the errors down by getting more and more information about what's going on to the, the item in question there, or items in question. Mm -hmm. Um, this is impressive. You, you mentioned that uh, you've gone up to six dimensions on the on the price um, mm -hmm. predictions. Right. Do you see any possible developments from the introduction now of AI to expanding this to more calculation capacity that it takes more dimensions into account? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, we could. I, I would. It's our hope to integrate AI into the tool and uh, right now you might have um, 500 independent, what they call independent variables, influencers on, on, a, on a, say a stock. What if the AI could pick the influencers for you faster than you could pick them even with your programming? And, and that would be a, something you could do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think AI is gonna have a huge role in this. Um, what we like to say in our low company is we're, we, we're we're focused more on the I rather than the A because there's some <laughs> intelligence here that nobody had seen before. Yeah. So the artificial part, the A is great, but at a certain point you got to focus on the I. What do we actually know? What can we know? And it turns out we could know a lot more than we used to know. And that's kind of the whole point is that um, once you see something like this illuminate before your eyes, you're going to say, "Oh my God, where is this?" You know, I got my degree in economics and. Uh, 
you know, part of me never believed all of that was being taught. And then all of a sudden I, I discover this and you say, well, this is the reason I didn't believe it. There's more going on here. There's, there's okay. you know, use the Wizard of Oz uh, phrase. There's more behind the curtain. So this mm -hmm. kind of takes the, takes the, opens up the curtain and shows you what's going on. So mm -hmm. it becomes a lot less mysterious when you do that. So, you know, a lot of people try to sell books, even in, even the financial realm about, you know, trying to throw some mystery around it, you know, make it a little mysterious. And they, you know, they'll say, well, what's going to happen here? Well, we can't know what this is going on. In fact, when I was studying this, this area on business jet, some highly regarded mark, uh, magazines were saying, well, we don't know what the market is for this. I go, don't you? I mean, it's right there. You can actually pull the data apart and say, that's not going to happen. You can make a statement about it. I made a statement about it. You could have made the statement about it. But don't tell me that you can't find the data on it because you just can't find the data because you have been told or taught how to find the data. The data is out there. And as we start to go forward, people are, are going to, you're going to be much less likely to make a, a statement like that. Oh, well, we can't know. Well, what if you could know? And that's the kind of the point is that a lot of stuff that people thought they couldn't know, they can't know. And, and this tries to lead them to the, Creating the tools, you know, tools we've created, tools that uh, they're going to create for themselves based on our tools, and then to solve these kind of answers so that we have fewer and fewer, first I'd say financial mistakes, but it also turns out that you can use a 4D model to apply it to COVID. So we've actually applied it to COVID. I, I don't know what it means, but we actually have a 4D model that's correlated that shows how COVID creates its own little market has a market you know instead of the instead of trying to solve for dollars like we do for stocks you know what's how much is it worth COVID's trying to sell for cases you know little, the virus is sitting yeah. out there how can I create more cases you know well i got to be in a place where there's a lot of people and it turns out that if the population is dense it likes to go there and at the beginning of COVID, what what was fascinating to us was that it liked the places that had more money now, why was that? Well, it turns out you might remember the reason that COVID liked the places where more money is that those are the people that are traveling more often. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was actually hitting the countries that had more, more money. And then at, also at the beginning of COVID, you could tell that countries that were in the high northern hemisphere or the low southern hemisphere in the temperate zones were being hit more frequently than countries in the tropics. And why is that? Well, some people thought began to think that it might have something to do with vitamin D uptake mm -hmm. or just a natural resistance. But the thing is that you wouldn't know that right off the top of your head unless you took the time to plot it. And that's kind of what we we take the time to do. We take the time to plot that and then try to make inferences out of what that data is saying to us. And so we hope that medical researchers will find some uses for this too. But it, it looks like COVID creates a market for itself. Now, if, if that sounds silly, and maybe it does, I got to tell you a one, one more story before we, we close here. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think it sounds silly. I'm actually thinking of the next announced uh, pandemic in the US. Have you, uh, are you hearing anything about it? I forgot the name of the mm, variant. There's another strain of COVID, I think, is yeah, what's uh -huh. coming. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have a but, new application now. <laughs> yes, we have a new application, but I... So one day, about, I don't know, two months ago, I was, I was standing at the end of a trail. I just looked down and I saw an ant. Not a, not a relative, a little tiny ant. Yeah. Uh, and, 
I remember Richard Feynman, the physicist, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, was had studied ants. And so I, I just decided to look at this ant for a second. So I saw this ant and it started to go in a counterclockwise motion. It looked like it was making a circle. So it goes around about 360 degrees. And then I realized it's not quite a circle. He's a little bit wider than he started out. And then he goes another 360 degrees and he's wider still. And then he does it another time, still wider. And then I realized that little guy is doing surveillance. And so I race in home, a, in a shape of go a onto the internet, and I type in ant surveillance. Uh -huh. And it turns out that this ant that's been around for at least 40 million years does surveillance. And what he was surveilling was he was going around to the, the, the going around the neighborhood here to see if he could find an open spot. See if this sounds like hypernomics, an open spot for his colony that he was then going to recon. Once he saw the open spot, he's going to see if it, it if the accommodation, much like the square footage of the house, if it was the right size, if it was cool enough, had the right amount of dampness, maybe not very much, but if it was, you know, and away from the bed, the other colonies, so he had his own little area, his own little spot in the sun, that ant. 40 million years old species, that ant was doing the same thing people do. So that that leads me to believe that this thing would go from a human to an ant to a virus pretty easily. It, it, everybody's kind of doing the same thing in their own environment. So the, the idea then would be to apply the general pr principle to the specific problem that you have. Wow. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> that, that was... Um... It took a while for me to understand the whole link with the ant and the virus, but okay. Yes, right. Well, that's the link right there. Yeah. So <laughs> it may seem strange, but it, you know, when, once you start to see this more frequently, I mean, and the other thing too is, you know, I, mean, I came up with this idea. Uh, I didn't believe it for three or four months. It just seemed astonishing. What do you mean there's four dimensions? Well, they're not physical dimensions. I kept telling myself, these are mathematical dimensions. And then I finally got it. Okay, they're math dimensions, so it, it's different. They're uh, it exists in its own little world, but it's right there for you to plot if you just take the time to do it. So I Very took the time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting um, line of study, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, another question, but um, it's going to take me a while to recall it. In the meantime, maybe you can tell us once again about where people can uh, reach you and about your book once again. When oh, okay, great. Out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My uh, my email address, if you care to email me directly, is dhoworth, that's D-H-O-W-A-R-T-H, at hypernomics.com. Uh, the website for my company is www.hypernomics.com, H-Y-P-E-R. N-O-M-I-C-S. My personal website is DougHoworth.com. And my book entitled Hypernomics Colon Using Hidden Dimensions to Solve Unseen Problems is already available for pre-sale on the Wiley website, along with Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It will hit bookstores in January of 2024, January 29th, I believe. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So. Well, my question didn't want to be asked, so I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We had some fun, though. Um, but thank you so much for, for this intriguing conversation. It was very interesting. And I do hope that eventually this uh, field of study reaches universities according to your plan and gets spread even to 
the administration and uh, governmental organizations. I think it's useful there and basically everywhere. <laughs> right. Well, Zarina, thank you so much for having me on. As I said, I, I look, I love your organization. I love the podcast. So thank you. It's a, it's a great honor for me to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Grow and Learn. We hope that you found our podcast informative, engaging, and inspiring. Our mission is to help you keep growing and learning, and we hope that our conversations and insights have provided you with practical advice and useful perspectives. If you're looking for personalized support and guidance to help you achieve your personal or professional growth objectives, I offer a range of services to help. As a trusted management partner and mentor, I work with businesses in the process of transformation, looking for new streams of business, as well as M&A. With an extensive professional network of experts and mentors, I can bring on board the right person or team based on the specific needs of the company I'm working with. To learn more about the services I offer and how I can help you achieve your goals, visit my website at growandlearn.org. You can also reach out to me via email or social media. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Grow and Learn, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback is important to us and it helps us to continue to create content that is relevant and valuable to our listeners. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to sharing more insights and perspectives with you in the future.